I'm here at the great Philadelphia Comic-Con 2019, speaking with Jim Martin, who's maybe best well-known for playing Gary Gnu in The Great Space Coaster, but he's done tons of other work. Um, so thank you for speaking with me. Oh, thank you for asking me to speak to you. <laughs> so uh, first, tell me, how did you get into this business of being a puppeteer? Oh, I always feel that, well, at my, at my age, when you were in second grade, you always made puppets in school. And I always feel that I meet people who are professional puppeteers, and they say, at some point, I had to make a puppet for school, and they either got bit there or they didn't get bit, you know, by the fact of putting your hand inside something and bringing it to life and being like, wow, look what I can do, you know. So that's, I go back to my second grade. And also, I grew up in the 50s. So it was the, the start of television, basically, and there was a lot of puppets on children's shows at that time. Mm -hmm. So like Howdy Doody and Ding Zong School and Captain Kangaroo and all of those shows had puppets on, and I just was fascinated by them. Yeah. Did you have, um, did you try to emulate favorite puppets or did you create have your own creations that you like to focus on? Um, yeah, that's a very good question. I never thought of that. Uh, well... When you're when you're young, you know your parents can only usually buy you whatever you know is out there, like Stife puppets, or you know like there was some rubber puppets that I had when I was a little kid. So um, I I really didn't have anybody till later on in my life that could help me make puppets. And as a child, I think it was more about putting the puppet on and making it dance or sing or whatever, as opposed to learning how to create something, you know. Um, so for me, it was about performing first and creating a character second. Okay. Yeah, and it was it was later on in life that I learned just simple things about paper bag puppets, and, you know, we were using paper mache at the time, and, you know, th those kinds of things. What... what uh so did the puppets, when you performed, what sort of worlds or venues did you imagine them in? I think mostly fairy tales, you know, because again, um, growing up in the 50s, there was not, there was not uh, the, the filmatic sense that everybody has now. I, I think it was, you know, like, like a lot of us, until I saw Jim Henson and the Muppets, did I realize how crazy puppets could be. Um, there was there was Burr Tilstrom with Kukla and Ollie, which I loved, uh, because Burr was an amazing puppet performer, and uh, Fran Fran, who was the live host of the show, the way she talked to Kukla and Ollie, and the way they talked to her, I loved that relationship. You know, puppets talking to a human being, yeah. and it's sort of like was like like was a child talking to an adult asking questions learning and that so um, I think that's what fascinated me you know that they had that the puppets had an adult to learn from yeah so what uh, so when how did your career progress did you professionally or did you study puppeteering in any way or what did you do um Again, like 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 a lot of us, I was big fans of, of the Muppets. You know, in the in the late '60s, early '70s, I became aware of Jim Henson and what he was doing through his commercials and that. And then with the Muppet Show, that was just phenomenal work. You know, the Muppet Show still has not you know been capped in its quality, its comedy. Uh, and then at that point, um, I was old enough to start having to look for a job. So when I was in college, I did a little work on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood and met Fred and was very influenced by, you know, his teachings and his sensibilities. Um, 
when I graduated from college, I started my. I was hired by the city of Pittsburgh Parks Department mm-hmm. to uh, perform puppet shows. So for about seven, almost eight years, I would do shows live in the in the parks and that. Mm-hmm. And then I got to meet Carol Spinney, who is Big Bird and Oscar the Grouch. Okay. And Carol saw some of my work. And he introduced me to Kermit Love, who, who built and designed Big Bird. Mm-hmm. Kermit was working on a show called The Great Space Coaster. Mm-hmm. And I had, in between there, worked for Kermit a couple of times on commercials that he was doing. So I got to uh, audition for The Great Space Coaster. And that was probably my first opportunity to really professionally work. I had done a lot of television in Pittsburgh where I lived, uh, a lot of local shows, and worked with Joe Negri, who was on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Uh, Joe had a live a live show on Sunday mornings, and I puppeteered on his show. Um, so I met a lot of wonderful, talented people and was just really, really lucky. So as, as you were developing your work, did you see a difference, you know, if you look at uh, kids' animation versus kids' puppetry? How are the characters, to me the characters don't seem like they would visually or um, characteristically be any different, but is there a difference between animation and puppets in any significant way? Well, I used to always joke when people would ask me, what do you do for a living? I would, I would say, I'm a, an immediate animator. Uh-huh. And people would say, well, what is an, an immediate animator? And I would say, well, you have your cell animation, your stop animation, you've got your computer animation. What we do is we immediately take something that is non non uh, animate and put our hands inside and immediately bring it to life. Mm-hmm. So we're immediate animators, you know. Okay. I couldn't draw, so I had to be an animator somehow. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about your time in uh, Great Space Coaster. How did that progress? Well, that was that was really a wonderful time because here I am going from. I had been to New York a couple of times, um, visited the set of Sesame Street. I had worked with Kermit Love. I'd worked with some of the Muppeteers. And now I had my chance of of having my own characters on a TV show. But I only realized that later on after it was over. Because like so many jobs, it's like what we're doing right now, we're just doing it. Later on, you'll think about what we just did. Mm -hmm. And that was sort of how my life was. I was just always like doing stuff. And I never, never stop to think about it because you're just doing it. Mm-hmm. Does that make any sense? It does. I, okay. Oh, okay. absolutely. Yeah, you're not going. Oh, this is wonderful. I mean, we were, we were making the show, and we were under a deadline. We had, we had to be there and, and work on the show and learn our lines and shoot the show and have lunch and then come back right away and, you know, so you're on a time schedule. You're doing it. You're doing it, mm-hmm. and then the season's over, and you're hoping that it comes back and. It's all about anticipation, I think. Mm-hmm. You know. So, how precise when you're doing takes? Are there a lot of takes for, for a particular scene, or is it a little more uh, flexible as far as what the director is happy with? Well, that that all depends on the budget of the show, because uh-huh. uh, you know time is money, mm-hmm. and the word is show business, and you know everybody's got a budget, and they allow so much time to get each um, each shot. So they'll, you know, so the producers sit down before you sh- they shoot the show and they figure how long is this scene going to take. If there's a guest star, they allow more time for the guest star. If it's just the regular characters, if it's five characters, if it's two characters. So they try to time it all out to best get an idea of 
how long the shot's going to take. Mm-hmm. Or is it multiple shots? Is it one camera, three cameras, you know? So it, it, it all depends on timing, you know? So I can't give you a straight answer on that, you know? You, usually there's not enough time. Okay, no, that's good, that's good. Um, which, uh, are there any guest stars that, that stood out as far as having fun working with? Yes, Mark Hamill was amazing. We uh, Mark, Mark, I think, had just done the, the first Star Wars movie and was going to do the second movie. And John Lovelady, who was one of the original Muppeteers, was Knock Knock and Edison the Elephant on the Great Space Coaster. So John Lovelady, who is an amazing human being, John had worked with Mark on The Muppet Show, because Mark Hamill was on uh, The Muppet Show. So Mark knew John, and I think it was John that got Mark to be on The Great Space Coaster, because Mark, as you know, does incredible voiceover, and Mark loves puppets. So after we had done the show, Mark invited, uh, I think it was Kevin Clash, John, myself... And Richard Hunt, who had also, who was one of the great Muppeteers, Richard had worked also with Mark, and they were really good friends. And we went to their house. Uh, we went to Mark Hamill's house and met his wife and his his little kids at that time. They're now adults. And Mark and his wife were just so wonderful to us. But what I'll always remember, the, the my greatest memory is that we're in their house and they had little children, and the little children had big wheels. Yeah. And Richard and his sister were so crazy. They were just crazy people. And Richard and his sister got on these big wheels, and they were pedaling the big wheels around the house. And the look on Mark Hamill's kids' faces, like, what is happening to our world? Here are adults taking our big wheels and having fun with them. And and it's hard to translate that story, but just the look on these little children's faces as their world was being flipped upside down, you know, and, and having adults, you know, do this, that was just funny. But Mark was a great guy. He was really nice to us, and he loves puppets. No, he didn't. He didn't do any voice like the show he was on. He didn't do voices for any of the puppets, did he? Was he? No, just no. The... He was he was on as Mark Hamill. Right. He was on as Mark Hamill as as Mean Joe Green would come on as Mean Joe Green or Marvin Hamlish was Marvin Hamlish or Henry Winkler. We never <clears throat> the the show never had a celebrity come on as anything but themselves. They never played characters. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I was just curious if maybe since Mark Hamill liked puppets, maybe he snuck his voice, he might have said, hey, let me do the voice for... Right. No, no. It was There was no time for any of that. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. So, um, as far as writing the scripts, were you involved in the writing no, part? No. With the Great Space Coaster, there was a team of writers, and uh, I, I think, and I'm not quite sure... But because the Great Space Coaster was so segmented, you know, there was like the music video part, there was the Gary Gnu parts, there was the knock-knock and griddle joke parts, there was the live the live action music parts. I think different teams of writers wrote different segments. That's, that's, and I'm not sure. I've not really had a chance to talk to any of the older writers to find out how the show was put together. Because I was, I was 30 years old at the time, and I was just worried about performing, you know. Yeah. 
did he do other characters? On on well? the Great uh, Space Coaster, I did the villain Empty Promises, which looked like a big. Um, he was a ringmaster. He was a full body costume, yeah. and I puppeteered him. He had a big mustache <clears throat> and a top hat. I don't have a picture of him here, and and the purpose of Empty Promises was. Baxter the clown who drove the coaster was a clown in empty cir- circus and empty promises was always trying to get him to come back to his circus yeah. so he was the villain trying to thwart everybody's plans yeah. so it was kind of fun because I got to be the evil character and I got to be the insane Gary Gnu you know later on um, I did a little character whose name was Baffle and Baffle was a little green alien character that could time travel 12 seconds back in time <laughs> and then um, John Lovelady eventually left the show and then Noel McNeil came in and did Knock Knock the Bird and then I took over Edison the Elephant okay so an evil character named Empty Promises while it's a kids show that seems like also a very adult concept like adults are affected by evil people giving Empty Promises yeah, yeah absolutely That, and I loved his name I love M.T. Promises is a great name yeah. um, but he was he was a cornball, cartoony character. He was like eight foot tall with his top hat. He was bald under the top hat, so Baxter would become invisible and knock his hat off and embarrass him by showing his bald, big pointed bald head. Yeah. And he, um, they would put reverb, <clears throat> they would put reverb on my voice, so he was always like, "Oh dear, hello." <laughs> So he was kind of like a, a, a just a cornball character, yeah. Okay. So um, after Great Space Coast, well, did you work on any other non-Great Space Coaster projects during the show? And also, what do you do after? Yeah, I'm not quite sure how what, what the whole timeline of all of this is. Um, I got to work on Captain Kangaroo uh, through his last series which was a phenomenal phenomenal opportunity to work with him because of Kevin Clash. Kevin Clash was griddle on the Great Space Coaster, and Kevin was on uh, Captain Kangaroo and got me on the show with him, which was a really wonderful thing. Um, I got to do Mr. SpaghettiO for Franco-American, so I got to do some commercials with the character. Um, I worked on Sesame Street for over 22 years. I was in the can right-handing Oscar the Grouch and doing background characters. I got to be a director on the show. I was one of the first people, uh, one of the first performers to transfer from puppeteering and performing to directing the show, which was a great honor and a great opportunity. Uh, I worked on a show called The Puzzle Place on PBS. Um, I, I got to puppeteer Leonardo in the third Ninja Turtles movie. Oh, okay. Um, I was a director on Bear in the Big Blue House. I've just, I've just been very, very lucky and very fortunate to have such a great career. So does puppeteering include both like being above or below the puppet or behind it or being in costume too? It is, it is all of those things. It is all of those things. We, we look at um, when, you're, when you're inside a, a full, we call them full body puppets as opposed to costumes. Because like, like Big Bird, say, would be a full body puppet. Now, if Big Bird wore a tie, the tie would be the costume. Huh. Not Big Bird. Okay. Big Bird is the character, but okay. if he puts on a tie, then that tie is the costume. G- the, Gary's suit is his costume. 
Interesting. Yeah. But if yeah. but if Gary was in a bathtub, say taking a sh- taking a bath, yeah. he wouldn't wear his suit. Or maybe Gary would wear his suit in the bathtub. <laughs> He's crazy enough that he would not want to be seen naked or naked, as he would say. <laughs> For some reason, Ron Burgundy jumps into mind when I think ah, of it. They stole it all from Gary Gannou. <laughs> okay. Even though they probably don't think they did, it was in their little childhood memory, and it just sparked like, hey, Gary Gannou, we could be pompous and Gary. <laughs> though Gary, you know, to me, Gary came off of Peter Finch. To me, uh, off of Peter Finch in um, Network, when Peter Finch said, you know, I want you to go out there and throw up your window and yell, I'm as mad as hell and I won't take it anymore, you know. And Gary, in a way, was like one of the, before YouTube, Uh you know, Gary's videos were like YouTube videos that he would put crazy narrations to. (laughs) You know, think about it. You know, there would be a a video of um, VW Bugs on a field pushing a giant ball around yes. and Gary would make up a story about what that was about you know <laughs> or there would be a guy on a on a uh, skateboard that had a motor on it but Gary would insist that that motor was powered by bees yeah. and it was bee powered you know yeah, <laughs> just crazy stuff yeah. but that was all from the writers it all came from the writers crazy minds so um what special skills, you know, some people might say, oh, being a puppeteer, you know, you just move it around. Like, what, what special skills do you need to succeed? And and what do you think you had that kept you going, able to continue in the industry? Well, I, I think um, this is why I call us puppet performers, because we're all actors and we all create characters. And you start out with the physical, but then you have to imbue it with a voice. You have to, you know, take the script and you have to perform the script. You're just not reading words in a funny voice. So as a, as a puppeteer, puppet performer, you're a voice actor, you're a physical performer, you're, you know, th- there's just a lot to it. So um, let's talk about your efforts to preserve the Great Space Coaster. You I would know. love to. So, yeah, so what... So you were telling me off-camera before. Okay. We can go over it again. What happened with the show? So, so my wife, Crystal, and I were living in Pittsburgh, my home, and we were volunteering for a cartoon art museum called the Toonzeum. The Toonzeum was created by this really crazy car- art- artist and a really good guy. His name is Joe Wose. And one day, Joe said to Crystal and I, you know, you, we were going around to different conventions promoting tourism in Pittsburgh and the Tuzeum, the Tuzeum. And uh, Joe said, oh, if we had Gary Gnu, Gary Gnu could help us promote tourism and all of that. Who owns Gary Gnu? I said, I, I don't know. That was, at that time, like 30 years ago. <clears throat> so unbeknownst to me, my very good friend and lawyer, Suzanne Phillips, Crystal and Joe Woese started doing an internet search for the Great Space Coaster and who owned it. Well, the original production company was Sunbow Productions, which was part of Griffin Bacall, which was an ad agency in New York. So Griffin Bacall had gone and retired, and all of their physical assets had been sold to Sony. Sony internally sold all of those physical assets to Sony Wonder, 
and Sony Wonder at some point had sold all of the physical assets to a TV company in Germany called TV Loonland. So what were all those physical assets? Well, besides the Great Space Coaster, they were G.I. Joe, the Transformers, My Little Pony, Gem. These were all cartoon shows that Sunbow and Griffin Bacall had produced. So they're all sitting in Germany, and TV Loonland was a company that acquired children's programming globally, and they would redub it in, in, a lang in different languages and then sell it in those countries. Okay. So what had happened was somebody at Hasbro had said, well, we're going to start doing live-action versions of G.I. Joe and Transformers. It would really help promote the franchise if we re-released the cartoons. Where are those cartoons? What happened to them? Oh, Griffin McCall owns those. Sunbow Productions owns them, and they're out of business. Oh, they sold them to Sun. They sold them to Sony. Then they sold them to Sony Wonder. Oh, they're in Germany with TV Loonland now. We've got. To, we don't own them. <laughs> We've got to buy them back. Yeah. So they bought that whole library of those shows back. So TV Loonland was left with shows that Sunbow had produced on their own like The Great Space Coaster. Suzanne Phillips negotiated for us in German uh, to, to buy and acquire the rights to the show. And that's what we did. We took all of my retirement money and we bought The Great Space Coaster. And if I could reach over oh, sure. across you here, this is modern technology of the 80s. <laughs> Two-inch reel-to-reel tape. And this is one episode of The Great Space Coaster. And these shows were actually shipped around from TV station to TV station. So there were no hard drives. There was, there was no digital media in those days. So to, to find out what's on this tape, we have to have it digitized. These tapes are falling apart. Most of the time, these tapes actually have to be baked in an oven before they can be put through the machines. Because oh. they're what they call delaminating. Uh -huh. The backs of the tapes and the front of the tapes are sticking together. Oh, wow. So when they run them through the machine, they pull apart and fall apart. Yeah. So by baking it, it kind of takes the stickiness away and makes it... Usually you get one shot at it. So it's baked... It's put in the machine, it's run through, and you just cross your fingers. We've lost a few episodes because they've just fallen apart. Which, uh... We don't know. You don't know? Oh, uh, I mean, I can tell you a number, but I can't oh. tell you what's on them because there's no log. Right. I do not know what's on the show until we get it digitized. And that's, that's crazy. There was no logs or anything. We were talking also off camera uh -huh. about maybe people on YouTube, you know, people who recorded it when they were kids or stuff might have put some of them on YouTube and or And there something. are. There's some great, great, great uh, VHS copies that were put on. And what I really think is great is these have no commercials on them. So if you had a copy of the show and you put it up on YouTube, it's got the commercials from the time. You know, it will have the bumpers from, you know, you're watching, you know, Channel 53 in Pittsburgh, you know, that kind of stuff. So it's kind of fun to find out where these shows all came from, too. Who was, what little 10-year-old kid was watching it in, in Philadelphia, say, or in, in uh, San Diego, California, you know. And you were also saying that you, even though you own these, 
and parts of the rights you can't you can't show them because of certain licensing for music and whatnot. Yes, so so many of the pieces of the Great Space Coaster, like the animation, like a lot of the music, because we had Beatles music, we had Led Zeppelin music on the Great Space Coaster. That was all licensed, and right now we have no corporation behind us for finances. And sad as it may be, our friend Suzanne Phillips uh, was killed a few years ago. She was crossing a street in Tampa, Florida, and she was run down by a driver who ran a red light. So we lost our good friend and a person who was helping us so much to save the Great Space Coaster. So for you, yes, it's very, it's it it took number of years for us to just be able to deal with that, you know, because Suzanne was. All the jokes about lawyers, you know, Suzanne was the total opposite. She was a sweet person. She was our friend. She worked hard. And she loved us, and we loved her, and she loved all of her clients very much. So we lost Suzanne, and we have not been able to find a lawyer nor the finances to pay a lawyer. So every every penny we get from coming to a, every dollar we get goes into a fund to try to digitize these shows. Because these tapes are 39 years old now. Videotape was not meant to last more than 10 years usually. So um, we're trying to save this show and hopefully relaunch a new Great Space Coaster for a new generation. So what... uh so what sort of influences have inspired you? Obviously, you like the puppet stuff, but how about in sci-fi or fantasy books, movies, music, TV shows, anything else? Oh, yeah. Well, I love I love music. You know, that, that to me, every experience you have, you take a little piece of it away, you know, like, um, obviously, the comedy of the Muppets I've always loved. The fact that Jim was so, so sincere with Kermit. And what Kermit was trying to do is hold his little ragtag group of performers together and make a show. Um, I, I love all of that. Um, what, I, what I took away from Mr. Rogers was the fact that you're talking to the camera, you're performing for just one person. You know, um, when we make a show, we're doing it sort of in a vacuum. We have no studio audience. You know, when I was performing for the city of Pittsburgh in the parks, you had kids sitting out there. You heard them laugh. You heard them boo. You heard them. Yeah. You're clapping. Whatever. You you got a reaction, a feedback. You know, when you're doing a TV show, only after the show has aired and maybe you go somewhere and people talk to you, do you understand how people are responding. You know, when you're doing the show, it's the crew. If the crew laughs, then you think, well, maybe it's funny. Mm-hmm. So I learned that you're, you know to look at the camera or, or the the viewer is who you're performing for, and that with Mr. Rogers with Fred Rogers that's the thing I took away from, and also the music of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, Johnny Costa, who created the music live while they were taping the show, was just he was an incredible performer, a really wonderful man, and and taught me a lot about jazz, especially working with Joe Negri also. So I love jazz music. I think children shouldn't be played down to. I think music should elevate all of us up. And uh, you know, repetition and all of that is really good. And that's why children will watch something over and over and over again because they like it so much. But um, all of the shows that I've had the fortunate, good fortune to work on, like Sesame Street, Johnny and the Sprites, which was a, a Playhouse Disney show, 
which had sort of a Broadway feel to it. You know, we, we always tried to make sure that the music was really good quality. So I love music. As far as what do I like, I love fantasy films. Um, I love Dark Crystal and Labyrinth and Planet of the, the original Planet of the Apes. Um, a legend, Ridley Scott's legend. Um, just fairy stories, as, as I said to you earlier, yeah. you know, going back to fairy tales, you know, that's sort of where I grew up. So yeah. I guess I'm more of a fantasy person as opposed to a, a space sci-fi person, though I love Star Trek and I love the Orville, you know. Yeah. Um, I, I just, deep inside, I love this kind of fantasy, Ninja Turtles, you know, that kind of stuff. So if you had, if someone right now gave you all the time and money you needed, what, what, uh, puppet work would you like to do any specific character or something original that you'd love to put out there i would love to bring the great space coaster back because i i always tell people that the great space coaster was steam powered because if you look at the if you look at the animation you see little puffs of steam coming out of the back of the great space coaster that animation was done by by the way by ray favada Ray Favada, God bless his soul, we just lost him to, a year ago. And Ray it was such a great animator, he won an Emmy for that opening oh, of wow. the Great Space Coaster with the fish skeleton and all of that. But what I mean by steam-powered is is the educational part of science, technology, engineering, arts, and math. Okay. And if you look at the Great Space Coaster, which to me is, a, is the ride, the cosmic ride of fantasy of our lives... Um, there was a lot of science and technology and, and and just learning things about the Great Space Coaster. So I'd like to bring it back and make it more about the technology today and make it about, you know, the, the fantasy of kids learning how to get along, how to create together. Because remember, there was three musicians on the show. And those young musicians, you know, Fran and Dan and Roy, they were creating and making music and, and working together and having problems figuring out their music and dealing with these crazy puppet characters that were always trying to you know be in their show or come with them come to them with problems or whatever so i think the great space coaster still would be a really great fit because it's a magazine format show there's a lot of different segments i think gary you know doing his no gnu show we have some different characters that we'd like to add to the show um I would love to bring back the Great Space Coaster. Now, who so you do own the tapes, but who owns the rights to the show? The rights to the show are owned by a company that my wife and I formed called Tanslin Media. Okay. It's T A N S S T A N Tanslin L I. Sweetie, how do you spell Tanslin? <laughs> okay. It is Tanslin Media, T-A-N-S-L-I-N, which means there are no straight lines in nature. And that's about our journey. You know, there's no straight lines. You just never know which way that coaster is going to take you and what may be around the next bend. Just talking to you, somebody may hear this and say, let's do it. Let's launch the Great Space Coaster. So you have to put yourself out there. You have to let people know what you're trying to do. And it is Tanslin. No straight. There are no straight lines in nature. I think any producer would be happy to hear that. That, as far as worrying about the rights, that it's right. We you, have, you got we, it. We own. We own the rights to the show. Yeah. Yes, we do cool. own the rights to the show. So, um, 
actually you made me think of something else which I forgot but uh, alright um, so you mentioned the name of the production company uh, where can people find online and social media how, how can they find more information okay, well, the, great, the Great Space Coaster has a website it is thegreatspacecoaster.tv which is a website that talks about people who worked on the show um, different things that we can find out about, about the show because for, for Crystal and I, it has been a rediscovery because I was just a puppeteer on the show. So now we're finding out more about how the show is put together, behind-the-scenes photos people are, are sending us. Yeah. Um, so that's sort of the me, the main thing. And that is run by a very good friend of us, ours out of uh, Toronto. His name is Scott. And Scott created TheGreatSpaceCoaster.tv for us. We're on Twitter as The Great Space Coaster. And mainly you can find us on Facebook, The Great Space Coaster. And if you look, because there's a number of fan pages, we are the ones with the banner and the drum logo that says The Great Space Coaster. And you'll find us because we've posted about Noel McNeil, who was knock-knock being here with me at the, at the, at the con in Philadelphia. Okay. Yeah, that's all the questions I have. Do you or Gary Gnu have any last thoughts or words to add? Well, I, I just want to tell people to keep being creative and keep being curious. As a child, I think that was what television did for me. It made me curious. And nowadays, not to criticize technology, but it's so easy to just look things up and you think it's all in the palm of your hand. And people forget to be curious to ask you, how did you get started in this business? What did you, why are you talking to me, you know? Keep curious. It's very important. And also, as Gary would say, always remember, no GNU's is good GNU's with Gary GNU. <laughs> A little crazy. <laughs> yeah. he's, a, he's an interesting character. <laughs> he is mad as hell. <laughs> his own GNU. He's his own GNU. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, so thank you for speaking with me. Thank you so much. Have a good nice day. <laughs> you too. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to visit chrisalvarez.com or theartofsciencefiction.com for more great interviews, photos, and articles. Your visits help support this podcast. Please remember that my first name, Chris, does not have an H in it. One of the best ways to provide feedback for this podcast is to rate me on iTunes. Please give me a good rating if you liked it, or feel free to give me a bad rating if you didn't. I'll use that feedback to make this a better podcast. You can also follow me on Instagram under Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi, on Facebook under Chris Alvarez WLC, on YouTube under Chris Alvarez WLC, and on Twitter under Chris Alvarez WLC. Thanks for listening and keep imagining the future.